Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The FT. The stronger pound is good news for holidaymakers, but make sure you don't get shortchanged when paying for things abroad. Why is money pouring into risky crowdfunding projects at a time when the rest of the finance industry is struggling to rebuild trust? And buy land. They're not making it anymore. Now there's a new way to invest in one of the best-performing asset classes of recent years. Welcome to The Money Show, one of the FT's most popular podcasts. I'm Jonathan Ely, and I'll be giving you all this week's money news in downloadable form, with the help of my FT colleagues James Pickford and Judith Evans, plus a special guest, James Hickman of Caxton FX. Let's start with holiday money. Sterling has been on a bit of a roll against the euro lately. A few years ago, holidays in Europe were an expensive business as the pound flirted with parity against the single currency. But as the UK's economic recovery has gathered pace and Europe's has stagnated, the pound has gained ground and the euro has weakened. This week, the pound hit a new high of €1.38, the best level since December 2007. And according to the post office's holiday money report, the cost of a basket of summer holiday essentials is now anything up to 50% cheaper in places like the Algarve than it was in 2009, due to both the single currency's drop and local price cuts. But while a pound buys more euros, it's still possible for the unwary to end up paying a lot in commissions and spreads when changing money abroad, or when spending money on plastic. So, what's the best way to take and spend money on holiday? And what about larger sums, for instance if you're paying for chalet rental, or even a deposit on a second home? Joining me now is James Hickman, who is Managing Director of Caxton FX. James, welcome to The Money Show. For short breaks, for instance, a, a weekend city break, I guess most people will probably still use cash. Uh, what are the golden rules when changing money? I think that the one and pretty much only golden rule is to be prepared. So rather than wait till the airport, which a lot of people do, um, where you're sure to get almost the worst rate you possibly can, um, try and think about it in advance. There are many ways to take cash. You can get cash delivered to your home. You can go to one of the many bureaus in London that actually do offer fairly good rates or take currency on a prepaid card. These days are very, very popular and replacing traveller's checks more and more. Okay, we'll come on to that in a minute. 
Um, if you go abroad and say you have a sort of meal out for four, the bill comes to a fair amount, and you decide uh, rather than kind of deplete your your cash wad, you, you'll put it on debit or credit card. I mean, it's quite easy to do that now, but a lot of people find the charges that banks apply quite confusing. I mean, what do people typically pay if they're putting things on card, and does it vary between debit and credit cards? It, it, it certainly does. Um, Particularly on credit, when you're getting cash out, that can be very, very expensive indeed from a hole in the wall. If you're paying at shops and restaurants, uh, things to look out for, or obviously, are the exchange rate plus any commissions that the bank may uh, levy. Now, they have to put on the statement what commissions they take, but obviously, you'll only know that when you get back home and open your statement. And quite often, um, I was in, in Amsterdam recently and I, I paid a restaurant bill and the uh, the waiter asked me in perfect English, of course, uh, whether I wanted to pay in pounds or euros. If you're asked that question, what's the right answer? Uh, the answer always to pay in local currency. Uh, shops, restaurants and becoming more and more common, it's something called DCC, which is dynamic currency conversion. This means that the uh, outlet that you're spending the money is doing the foreign exchange transaction themselves. So they can actually take whatever margin commission they like and sometimes can be up to 15%. So be very, very careful of doing that. Okay. now you mentioned uh, uh, cash cards a a while ago, sort of these are things you load up before you go and then then spend while you're there. You offer these, uh, lots of other companies offer them as well. How do they work? Uh, Very simply, you load... um, the currency you want to, our own product, you can load to any one of 15 currencies. Um, you load before you go. You know the exact exchange rate that you've loaded at. So when you're actually abroad, uh, you spend at the outlet, you know exactly what you're spending. So, for example, if you're, you're over in Amsterdam, you've loaded today at 138 at this fantastic exchange rate. You know when you spend, it's actually at 138 and not an unknown uh, exchange rate that you'll only find out when you get back. Okay, and what happens if, um, say, you go a bit mad while you're on holiday and you uh, inadvertently spend all the money you've got on on the card? What happens then? Do you have an embarrassing moment in a in a shop? Or? No, not at all. It's very very easy to top up. Um, you can do uh, on the Caxton FX card. You can do it via the app, uh, via SMS, or over the telephone online. Um, so it's very very easy to manage your money. And actually, one of the benefits of of using a prepaid card, it does help you budget whilst you're away, so you don't go mad and overspend. Hopefully. Finally, James, just a word on uh, transfers, uh, sort of larger amounts of money. Now, a few years ago, uh, an acquaintance of mine uh, returned to the UK from Spain, sold property out there, and they specifically opened an account at Santander in the UK, thinking that because it was a Spanish bank, that would make it all very easy. Uh, In fact, it wasn't easy at all. It was a total nightmare and it was very expensive. Why is that the case? And, And what's the sort of recommended course of action for transferring larger amounts of money between countries? I mean, again, it, it's being prepared and, and shopping around. There are many, many different ways of, of transferring money from your own bank, from opening a new bank account uh, to any one of hundreds of FX brokers. Um, the key thing is to use a reputable name, uh, make sure they're very well regulated and really shop around for the best exchange rate. Um, as I say, there are many out there. It's a very competitive market and nowadays should be very, very transparent. Thanks very much, James. Still to come on the show, get off my land. It's worth a fortune. But how easy is it to profit from rising farmland prices? First, though, let's have a look at crowdfunding. 
Take a journey on London's underground at the moment, and you'll find yourself staring at adverts offering you the chance to become an investor in a brewery, a trendy pizza chain, or a parking app. It all sounds very alluring. Cut out those venal scoundrels in the city and invest directly in local, fast-growing businesses whose values chime with your own. You can play at being Dragon's Den with as little as twenty quid. This is crowdfunding, where websites like Syndicate Room and Crowdcube bring individual investors together to fund projects. Unlike peer-to-peer lending, crowdfunding involves taking small equity stakes in a business, which makes it more exciting, but also brings additional risks. And crowdfunding is big business. While the rest of the financial services industry struggles to rebuild investor trust after decades of mis-selling and scandals, money is pouring into crowdfunding projects, and new websites are popping up all the time. Judith Evans was so curious about all these projects advertised on the tube that she dug a bit deeper. Judith, first of all, can you explain how the crowdfunding process begins? How do I become a mini business angel? Well, it's amazingly simple, and I think this is one of the attractions.、Um, you simply sign up to a website like Crowdcube or like Syndicate Room or like Cedars.、Um, it's very easy to become a member, so you can have a browse around.、Um, and then, if you decide that you want to pledge some money to a company, you can do that by handing over your payment details like you would elsewhere.、Um, they won't take the money unless normally unless、um, the company meets its funding goal. Um, at which point everyone pays up, and you then own a small stake in that company. Now, what about on the other side of the fence? How do companies become crowdfunded? Is there a process they have to go through? There is a process.、Uh, most companies that decide to go to crowdfunding are fairly small or at an early stage,、um, and what they have to do is go to the crowdfunding platform, as we call them,、um, and ask if they can list on their site.、Um, those platforms do say no to a lot of companies that they just don't think have a realistic proposition. Or that it are too early stage of their development, so you know they basically it's just an idea and nothing else. However,、um, the scrutiny that they go through is nothing like what they would have to go through if they wanted to, for example, list on a market.、Um, they have to post on the website、um, a business plan and some financial projections, but again, those are quite simple.、Um, they're not the sort of levels of detail that,、um, for example,、uh, venture capitalists like to pour over. Okay, and how is the price set? Because if you if you're a company and you float on a, on a stock market, there's a sort of there's a bit of toing and froing between your brokers and and the sort of likely purchasers of the shares about about what price they're prepared to pay, and typically there'll be a range set. But here there isn't that mechanism really. So who decides how much these companies are worth? Well, that's one of the big questions.、Um, the companies initially arrive and they say we think we're worth this much. Um, the crowdfunding platforms can tell them, well, we're not sure about that.、Um, and likewise, once they're listed on the platform, potential investors can go on their Q and A and say, we think that's a bit too much. There's even often a mechanism where you can make an alternative offer, saying, I'll pay you this much money if you move your valuation to this much. But still,、um, there's a lot of question marks over whether that process really leads to a realistic valuation or to a valuation that would actually enable investors to make some money. There's a couple of websites now which have taken a different approach, where already practiced angel investor will lead the investment and will negotiate over prices.、Um, Syndicate Room, for example, says that a lot of its valuations are really brought down quite a lot before they ever appear on the site.、Um, so that's one sort of form of safeguard. But、um, the question of valuations is is a big one、um, and one that I'm not sure the crowdfunding industry has really 
tackled properly yet. Okay, and as uh, as you mentioned, crowdfunded companies are typically very small and quite fast growing, and usually as they get bigger, they will require further injections of cash and they will have further fundraisings. How do you know as an investor that you're not going to be diluted and then diluted again and again before you actually get an exit? Well, this is where you really have to read the small print. Um, what you want to have is preemption rights, which means that you get first dibs when they um, decide to hold another funding round. But quite often for small investors, um, you don't get this on a crowdfunding site. You might decide that doesn't matter if you're just helping out a friend by chucking them 20 quid. But if you're serious about your stake in this company, then you're probably better off having preemption rights, especially in the event that the company decides it would like to raise money through a method other than crowdfunding. Um, because if they do that and you don't have preemption rights, then you might be excluded from the fundraising altogether, um, which means your ongoing relationship with the company probably doesn't take the form that you hoped it would. Okay, I mean, it sounds like there are a, a fair few risks and downsides uh, to crowdfunding. Um, it's not as tightly regulated as stock markets. It doesn't have the tax advantages of sort of EIS and, and VCTs, yet it's very popular. What do you think motivates people to put money into it? Is it all about making money or are there other factors at play? There are definitely other factors. I think there's actually quite a wide spectrum of people putting money into crowdfunding. Um, and the motivations are really interesting. There are a lot of renewable energy projects that have done very well through crowdfunding. And I think that's possibly because the same people who are worried about climate change and who support renewable energy are also sceptical about traditional finance. So this is an opportunity for them to try and do things a different way. Um, there are also some entrepreneurs who go on there to support fellow entrepreneurs. There are people supporting friends and family. And there's an element of sort of localism as well. People love the idea of supporting a local business. Um, and this really has sort of revived some connections between investors and small businesses or businesses in general that perhaps don't exist in other parts of the investment market. Um, I imagine not many people who hold a stake in BP really feel involved with the company, although perhaps with something like the Royal Mail flotation, it was a bit further in that direction. I guess what that means for investors is that they need to be clear about what their goals actually are. Um, because just because you love your local pizzeria doesn't mean that it's going to make you a financial return as well. Thank you very much, Judith. You can read lots more about crowdfunding in this weekend's FT Money, where it forms our cover feature. FT Money is available in print as part of the Weekend FT or online at ft.com forward slash money. It's also available on iPads and Android tablets. In the spirit of the crowd, we'd love to hear your views. Have you invested in a crowdfunding project? Why did you do it? And what returns are you expecting to make? You can email us on money at ft.com or tweet us at ftmoney. And you can leave comments at the foot of individual articles on our website. On to our final item for today. Mark Twain famously advised investors to buy land because they're not making it anymore. And of course, we Brits don't half love our property. But the best performing property market of the past decade or so isn't Mayfair or Chelsea or some up-and-coming area of outer London. It's arable farmland in places like East Anglia or Lincolnshire. According to Savills, the estate agent, the price of an acre of prime farmland reached £8,000 last year, an increase of 277% in a decade. And very shortly, you'll be able to buy into the loan boom via a new company listing on the stock exchange. James Pickford has more. 
James, I keep hearing that farmers have never had it so tough uh, that they're selling milk below production cost uh, and so on. So why has the price of land for farming gone up so much? Well, there is a there is a fundamental economic reason why um, farmland uh, tends to rise uh, in value, and that is because unlike um, residential or commercial real estate, where you can improve the value or the capacity of um, the property um, simply by building a bigger building or a better building, more valuable building, you can't do that with farmland. Uh, there is there are limits to its capacity. Um, aside from that, uh, other factors include the fact that people need to eat. There is an essential reason why farmland is is has has value as a productive asset. Um, but more more than that, in the UK, people are tending to hang on to their farmland, so supply is more constrained. In the 1970s, um, you might get sort of three or four percent um, of farmland sold every year. That's now down to below one percent every year. Um, the other thing is that it's not just farmers buying farmland now. It's sort of urban dwellers who like to own a piece of uh, the, the English countryside, a little piece of England, um, or indeed any other part of the UK. Uh, it's institutional investors and it's entrepreneurs like Sir James Dyson who are seeking safe ways to diversify their investments and, and farmland is a good one. And it does also have some tax advantages, doesn't it, which may be playing a part in, in that sort of uh, more financial demand for land. Absolutely. You can pass on some agricultural property free of inheritance tax, um, either during your lifetime or as, or as part of your will. And that doesn't just include um, land or pasture, uh, it includes things like stud farms or uh, trees that are regularly coppiced, you know, um, woodland that's coppiced, or farm buildings, farm cottages. Um, it also offers generous tax breaks on capital gains tax uh, and business property relief. Uh, tell us a bit more about this new company that's uh, planning to float on the stock market, uh, touting itself as basically the a unique play on, on the UK farming business. This is a company called Greenshields Agri, which is a grain producer um, which farms 3,500 acres in Northumberland and Berwickshire and East Lothian in Scotland. Um, it doesn't own all of it. Um, it owns 2,800 2, acres of that. It wants to buy another 220 acres in Northumberland. And in order to do that, it's, it's intending to raise £3 million um, of capital via this listing. Um, its pitch is that it's an investment not only in farmland, which it thinks will rise in value, but in farming itself, where its, its directors you know, say they've adopted these advanced farming techniques which allow them to produce more grain per hectare than the national average. Um, and it's also farming in places where land is not uh, as expensive as, as, as the rest of the country. So um, it thinks there's value there. The argument for small investors is, is that in order to get a decent yield out of farmland, you need to buy uh, a lot of it. Um, you, you know, just This is from working the land, not just owning it, uh, in order to get your economies of scale. And that, that scale is quite hard to come by. So this would give people an opportunity in theory, to gain exposure to farmland without spending millions of pounds buying it up. OK. I mean, that all sounds uh, uh, quite uh, compelling, but the cynical sort of journalist part of me thinks, well, isn't this a sure sign uh, that, that once vehicles like this start coming onto the market, that, that basically we're at the peak 
uh, of farmland or near the peak of farmland prices. Is there any evidence that, that is the case, or, or, or do most people expect prices to continue rising? Um, there is some evidence, certainly, that uh, the gains of the last decade are, are slowing down. Uh, state agents are saying that uh, we're, you know, we're the, the, the sort of 10, 15% growth rate is, is, is no more. We're looking at single digit annual rises over the next five to 10 years. Um, but obviously is a fairly attractive growth rate nonetheless. Thanks very much, James. And there's more on that story on our website at ft.com forward slash money. Other highlights this week. India's stock market has hit a new high after the government unveiled its budgets and the central bank cut interest rates. But is it too late to buy? A verdict is due in a key tax avoidance tribunal. It could lead to thousands more demands for disputed tax. And the pensions bill finally received royal assent this week, clearing the way for sweeping changes in April. The Money Show will be back next week, but for now, it's goodbye from me, James, Judith, and our special studio guest, James Hickman of Caxton FX. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.